for joining the Cardwell Beach Marketing Podcast. My name is Brian Erickson, Chief Strategy Officer and Partner at Cardwell Beach. In this series, we're interviewing senior marketers across industries to develop perspective on what marketing will look like in a post-COVID-19 world, which a year plus into this, we're all, we're all ready for here. So today's guest is Jeff Mills, the Chief Revenue Officer at iMerit Technology, which provides data annotation services to clients ranging from fintech and e-commerce firms to healthcare providers. Prior to his role at iMerit, Jeff was an executive with a variety of technology firms, including OnePage, an early employee at Kayak, Critio, and began his career at Yahoo. So, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Brian, for the introduction. Excited to be speaking with you today and hope I can provide you and your audience with something of value. All right. Well, let's let's put you to the test. Let's talk about weathering the storm. So uh, there have been a number of pivots, I'm sure, as, as you've navigated the storm here, and technology has formed the backbone of how we do business, regardless of industry. Talk a little bit about how this unprecedented moment changed the way and you know, probably continued to change the way that iMerit approaches business growth and expansion. Yeah, no doubt. Over the past 20 years, I would say it's it's become imperative uh, tech savvy to find success in business. But over the past year, it's been absolutely unprecedented. At iMerit, we had a unique challenge. We're a double bottom line company. This means we're judged on both conventional business performance, like top line growth and profitability, but also on a second bottom line that measures for performance in terms of our positive social impact. So our workforce is over 50% female, over 80% come from what's considered an inclusive or marginalized background, and we keep an over 90% retention rate of our employees. So we weren't in a position where we could even consider downsizing or making those types of pivots. That would completely go against our ethos in the company. So going into the COVID lockdowns, we had about 2,800 full-time employees working across seven centers around the world. Then in the course of a couple of days, we had to somehow embrace that these employees supporting hundreds of projects with high quality and throughput SLAs security compliance, et cetera, now would work remotely in areas of the world that, that make this change significantly more complicated than, than just here in the US. And we needed to do all that while continuing to deliver on our current business, close new business, and not lose momentum. So it was definitely hard work that was cut out for us. And I would say there were a few really important factors. The, the first was in the US, uh, our U.S. operations were a bit lucky. We had embraced a remote workforce model prior to COVID. So we were a little ahead of that curve. One thing we had learned early on was that video is super key. So every single call we have, internal, external, partner, client, it doesn't matter. We're always on video. We believe FaceTime is still important. And frankly, it's probably even more important right now during COVID to connect in the small ways we can. And so we really have embraced video as a company. Additionally, finding time to chat with all the stakeholders and doing your best to find ways to still engage in non-business banter, we have found to be crucial as well. So we've lost those opportunities of walking through an office, sitting at a coffee bar, you know, riding on an elevator with a client. Those conversations are, with clients are still absolutely crucial. And so we find ways of still engaging with our staff and with our clients and prospects uh, with that banter uh, and, and continue to have those types of conversations. The second, internationally, our centers in India and Bhutan, the challenge was a bit different. Those are our technology centers. Scaling up a remote workforce, shifting to a fully distributed model of managing people at scale virtually while maintaining the quality and efficiency that we have to hit for our clients was very difficult. 
But for us, I would say the main key for that was remembering our North Star. And for us, creating these sustainable jobs for an inclusive workforce, while being absolutely client obsessed, is our number one priority. They're not really two different priorities. We look at both of those as being absolutely critical to our success and have to happen all the time. So the idea that we had to put the oxygen mask on ourselves before we could help others could not have been more true for iMerit. For us to deliver for our clients who were also struggling, right, mightily during these lockdowns, as basically the entire global workforce shut down, our operations became even more imperative for them. So we did what we do every day, and we invested big time in our people. Training, support, organizing spaces in their homes, getting broadband installed. I would say one of the big areas that was key was there's no job beneath anyone in the company. There are stories of our CFO getting on a bike and delivering a laptop to someone, our CEO leveraging contacts to like get shipping centers to release laptops. And a bunch of us were doing office hours at night just to be there to talk to people, just to banter, again, talk to people who needed it. The third I would say is our L&D team really stepped up. So learning and development and the complexity of what we do was probably the third area that we invested a ton in. This is a bit of an extension of the second, but it deserves its own mention. Uh, investing heavily in learning and development for our employees made a huge difference. We want them, in fact, need them to be experts in the field for our clients. And our clients love us because of the quality and expertise we provide in that process. That's what creates the high quality data that empowers the AI systems you mentioned that we worked on, that we work on in the beginning of this call. So our clients expect our employees to grow and become even more advanced in those skill sets that experience and keeping up with the growing complexity of their use cases. So our clients rely on that expertise and this shows when they're trying to solve these complex edge cases in AI. So we had to embrace again video, we had to do tutorials, we had our solution architects shooting videos of them doing some of the sophisticated tasks that we work on and going through and sharing that with individual team members to really get them to the next level. And all those little things, believe it or not, added up really quickly. I think it was essential for our team to know that they weren't alone and that we were all in this together. So I think the relentless commitment to our clients and investing heavily in employee wellness and skill development is what helped us overcome the challenges of, of 2020 and really become stronger than ever. In fact, we reached new highs in client satisfaction, revenue, employee growth. In fact, we grew from 2,800 full-time employees around the world to over 4,000 during, uh, during COVID. And ironically, we even got satisfaction surveys that got us just recently to be certified as a great place to work. And I think it was that investment in really our people that got us to the next level. And then ultimately that ended up making us deliver for our clients at an unprecedented level. And so it, it really just helped us raise our game and, you know, as a company. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear, you know, you ended up on the right side of all this craziness here. And I guess, were there any notable pivots from a sales and marketing messaging standpoint that, that you went through with all this? Definitely what, what I would say is the first thing was you had to understand that your clients had problems. And what I basically tell my team, and if you sat in my office, you'd hear me say this 10 times a day, solve the client's problem. I think as marketers, our jobs can be looked at as super complex. 
But the reality is if you break it down to what the client problem is and focus relentlessly on making sure you take care of what that problem is for your client, you're already ahead of the game. So I would say that we really went into a disruptive mindset. And so a lot of our messaging is around how do we disrupt your current business? How do we make sure that we can bring your cost down and make you as efficient as possible during this, during this difficult time? And by solving the client's problems, and showing that, not just telling them, it started to move us to, to the next level quickly. How to win friends and influence people, right? That core sort of principle of focus on the other person and their needs never goes out of style, for sure. So I mean, it's, it's super difficult. It's super difficult to do, no matter what, uh, you know, whether it's your first day on the job or 20 years in, it's it's uh, equally challenging. So that's a, a good core message to, to keep in mind. And obviously, iMerit works with companies at the forefront of technological change from AI to medical breakthroughs to driverless cars. What are some lessons or best practices that you can share that can help companies prepare for the new era of technology that we're entering or, you know, probably that we're already in and, and don't realize? Yeah, so I think one of the things in AI, people kind of get excited about the new and intelligent devices that are coming out, the autonomous cars, the robots, the drones. These are the things that get all the attention in the media. You know, they're tangible, you can experience them, you can touch them. But the benefits of AI come in, in a lot of different forms. And it's not always a new product. A, a lot of times it's taking an existing business and making it more efficient reducing those costs, creating faster processes, better accuracy, less waste, improved service, finding greater insights and just making smarter decisions. So what I would say, I, what I think is really important is asking yourself, how will someone use AI to make their process better and more cost efficient? How will AI save us time or save them time? And if that happens, does it become a strategic advantage for, for the company? And can you compete in it? So one of the big messages I, I tell people is ultimately, if you can do more for less, you will drive more business in the long run. And I think that's a an ethos that a lot of companies don't embrace. You know, They want to make as much as they can the day they can make it. But if you can actually save your clients money by doing things more efficiently, they will end up spending more with you in the long run. So ask yourself, how can you use AI to increase value for your clients while bringing their costs down, even if that means they're going to pay you less in the beginning, because this will ultimately add to much bigger budget. Um, they will invest more in you because they will see that value add than that value creation. The other thing I would just say is look around your company and see if there's unstructured content that exists. I think one of the areas that, that a lot of companies don't realize is they're sitting on video and images and documents and audio conversation. You know, there's all these silos of information that AI can help break down. And there's a wealth of information in that unstructured content that you can use to get better, faster, cheaper, smarter, right? More efficient. And you may be sitting on a goldmine of this proprietary data within your company that could change your entire business outcome. So I think one of the biggest opportunities is to just look at the unstructured data that you may be sitting on as a company and see if you can use that to create value creation. I'm sure you can't name any names, but is is there any example even conceptually that you could give us of a brand that you saw do that? Think about recorded speech. We're on a recorded call right now. 
So, you know, you, you as a uh, company doing podcasts is creating a bunch of audio data. Well, audio is going to become the new UI um, as things move forward. You're already seeing companies, uh, well, products that are out in the market. You have smart devices throughout your home that are all audio enabled, right? And so companies need lots of unstructured audio data, <clears throat> excuse me, that can become structured data. And so if you can take huge amounts of audio data, structure that, that can be used to start creating AI systems that become very valuable. So even this podcast that that, that you've created, if you had enough of them, uh, would, would start to create an unstructured data set that becomes extremely valuable for AI models that are going to eventually be what powers you know your car, that's powering the electricity in your house that's that's creating uh, value for consumers on a on a day to day basis. So even your podcast right now is got unstructured data that could become very valuable. I like that. You got to kind of break some of the preconceived notions that, that you know just kind of on a worldview level the the way you think about things to really get into a, a future oriented mindset. There, I like that a lot. In terms of a future oriented mindset and what comes next for marketers and revenue strategists in the technology industry, which aspects, maybe even tactically, of our marketing and, and revenue growth strategies will persist into the new normal that we're hopefully headed to? soon and which do you think will revert look it's a great question to start with i think the days of being able to get a hold of a person on their office lines over that's been dwindling for years but it's basically impossible now i don't see people going back to the office for 10 hours a day five days a week anymore so i do believe remote work is the new normal yeah people start going back to the office a bit but it's just never going to be the same as it was you know as we grew up so i would say get used to that embrace it lean in and learn how to communicate with your audience where they are that said, I do think conferences will come back. People will travel again, but you're going to need to be even better at the virtual conference, the video content, the webinars, and again, value creation around content that your market wants to consume and needs to consume. And so the, the, the content has to be something they learn from when they touch it. If it doesn't add significant value, it's just noise. So at iMerit, I would say we've spent a significant amount of time during COVID, during these virtual events, doing microblogging during conferences this year to make sure that we were helping get the strongest content in the hands of our audiences. I think the idea that you're going to stand at a booth and just scan badges, you know, at a conference, those days are over for good. That said, I do think we are going to revert back to traveling. You just may not be going to an office to meet your client. You may be going out to the suburbs or to their lake house or <laughs> somewhere, somewhere else to talk to them. So I, I think you're going to have to start embracing that you have to go to where your prospect, your market is and make sure you bring them value early and often. They're not going to just trip over you anymore. The virtual conference topic has, has come up a number of times recently. What is your feel on where virtual conferences are going to go? I spoke at one somewhat recently, and it was just like a one-for-one -one translation or an attempt at translation from a physical real-world conference to a virtual one. And it was like, okay, do your speaking bot, and then now go stand at your booth, which is just a virtual booth, and then people just like pop onto your screen and attack you. So I guess, do you have any thoughts on how virtual conferences can be done in, in a more elegant and you know adapted to the medium sort of way so in, in some ways i think you can embrace the virtual conference better and i was alluding to that in the last question or bit was the microblogging and content that you can take from within these virtual conferences now you can start to connect with more people because they're looking for the content 
they're not necessarily going to conferences. They are having their tablets in front of them all day. They're in their cars. I mean, it's, it's why your podcast is doing well. So you, you need to be able to push that data out to people. And there's a lot of ways now that you can get your brand and your message tied into that data without just standing at a booth anymore. So I find the virtual conferences in a lot of ways can be much more beneficial than the old school conference methodology was because we got very used to going in, getting to our booth and scanning badges and giving away a teddy bear, or, you know, a teddy ruckspin or something at the end of the day. And ultimately that wasn't really driving the right lead quality. I think when you can bring that value with the great data that you have to solve your clients' problems, then you're way ahead. And so I believe the virtual conference has been more affordable. More people have tuned in to some of the big talks, and it's given us ability to grab more content and be able to interface with our clients more. So again, lean in, embrace it, find a way to leverage the content coming out of that to reward your audience and reward your customer or prospect. Definitely, definitely. And I guess I would be curious on any thoughts you might have as someone that, of course, is working with big data in some exciting ways on any practical advice you would give to small and mid-sized companies around leveraging their own data for success in you know, marketing, sales, and, and other customer-facing instances. Yeah, I, I think the first thing, you know, big data itself as a, as a topic, big data is dead. And, and that might shock people to hear me say that the, the reality is is big data will cost you and your company a significant amount of time and resources but great data is here to stay so so start thinking about what data is important and what data is going to again help solve your client's problem and I, I, again I, I told you guys you're going to get bored of hearing me say that but solving your client's problem is everything so remember data is now the new code it's going into the models Bad data equals bad model. Great data equals great model. Make sure the data you're collecting is great data. You don't want your model cheating off a C or D student, right? You want it to copy off an A student. So I, I think first and foremost, thinking about big data is the wrong thought process now. People need to think about great data, not big data. The, the next thing is there's really no barriers to entry. So small companies can act and present themselves much more like big companies. In fact, I would say that the bigger the company, that the size can actually hold you back. The smaller companies can be more nimble, flexible. The data space is all about iteration. So again, lean in and leverage that to your advantage in the space. Be super iterative and be super flexible on leveraging the great data that you can get your hands on. You know, just from a tech perspective in general, I would say continue to invest in technology platforms that can multiply or compound your capabilities. So, you know, CRMs and customer engagement, chatbots, communication platforms, you know, all of those things I think are, are also super important, but make sure the people you have managing those systems have both the tech aptitude, but also the vision and aren't scared to make mistakes. So that's one of the big things I have really dove into is iterating. You have to remember that this space, tech and data both, is more like an art. You're only finished because you decided it was finished. It's not because you graduated. So everything you're working on is just a work in progress. And you need to be very iterative and very flexible and continue to push it and just realize that like you're never done. It, there's no graduation date. 
That's awesome. That's pretty funny. One of my colleagues just said, it looks great. I know everything is everything we do is a work in progress. So definitely I'm on, on board with that. And it's funny because it was a little bit of a dig, but it's actually also a positive for sure as you're, you're always building it and you have that opportunity to launch every 10 minutes. hundred percent. So what do you see as the biggest headache for marketers in your industry as to what they're going to have to deal with for the remainder of 2021? And how do you think they can best tackle this challenge? Oof. Biggest headache. Biggest headache is probably it isn't over. So I'm sorry to tell everyone, everything isn't going back to normal tomorrow. And and even worse, we're probably going to think it's over and get sucked deeper back in it. And so this can be very difficult, I think, for the psyche. And you need to get in front of that a a bit, probably a lot. For enterprise companies like iMerit, you know, the remote worker, as I mentioned earlier, is still going to be key to the success So again, we need to embrace it and not fight it. So the remote worker, everyone's working from home. It's going to be hard to reach prospects. There's no physical industry conferences. There's no physical meetings. Travel's still going to be stagnant at best. The dynamics for how you meet people and build a relationship have definitely changed. And so I think people need to really think about how they're investing in self-serve engagement. And I think this is an amazing opportunity for all of our companies to really step up our game in the self-serve engagement arena. So what would a fully online customer journey look like for your prospect and your client? Can you answer the key questions of how do they find you? How do they determine if you're credible? Can they use your product? The more you can push out there in the customer engagement cycle prior to ever talking with them, this will only increase the odds of them reaching out to you. So I will continue to go back to solving the problem, but if you can solve the problem and show them how you solve the problem prior to ever speaking to the client, then you are setting yourself up to survive through the the pandemic this year that has probably propelled the company forward. Nice. And and that's a crazy thing to think about, especially in a business to business environment. What would an entirely self-service model look like? I think we're conditioned to just look at a, a longer selling cycle or sales cycle or buying cycle, really probably the right word to use there and assume that it be a big part of that on the brand side, but it's not necessarily, you know, it's maybe a limiting belief to a certain degree. But, but I, I want to be careful. I, I would still say that the human is absolutely critical to the success of these things. In fact, you know, white glove service is something that I believe in. I, I don't think you can automate everything, but how do you make the journey digital? How do you make the journey something where you can interact with the customer and show them that value before they've actually picked up the phone and and talked to you? How do you engage with them and start showing them that those answers, that you can be flexible and iterative and do all the things they need and still give them that level of service before they've met with you? Definitely. And, you know, even just from a thought exercise standpoint of like, if you had to just do this totally digital (laughs) before COVID, uh, you know, I think a lot of people would have been like, ah, whatever, I don't have to think about that. And then you're kind of thrust into it and and you had to figure it out. So it's better to think of it in advance. And, and to plan it in advance if, if you can. So I'm, I'm definitely in agreement with that. So I guess zooming in and, and looking tactically at your marketing and you know revenue generation mix pre-COVID to now, were there any sleepers that just kind of came out of nowhere that you weren't considering at all that really took off and won the day for you throughout all of this that you think you're going to hold on to? Or were there any tactics or channels that you just totally abandoned and, and don't think you'll go back to? Well, it's funny. We mentioned events earlier and events was probably 80% of our marketing spend or something in 2019. 
you know, events was a huge piece of our business. You know, we want to get out. We are a human company. We work in AI, but we're we're very much the human side. And so we want to get out and see our clients and, and sit down and look at them face to face and shake their hands and, and build that trust with the client. And and the best way to do that is to to sit across the table from them and, and dig into it. And when events got crushed and all of a sudden I couldn't go meet with clients in their offices, you know, we really had to figure out that customer journey that I was just mentioning and figuring out how to engage with them throughout, you know, a fully digital cycle. So that's something that we spent a ton of time on this year. Our social media and our content productions become a huge focus for us. And again, it's producing content our clients need and can use to be successful. I, I think account-based marketing for us has been a much bigger focus. It's not just throwing a giant net out and trying to, you know, catch all the fish that way. We've gone back to the basics a bit on who our accounts are that we want and who we need and breaking those accounts into clear segments and then sniper firing those specific accounts with the content they need. They're struggling as well, right? Our customers are struggling. The, the world is struggling. So every time we reach out to someone, it's to provide value. So I would even go as far is saying those automated seven you know, to 12 email drip campaigns that people are still running, they're probably hurting your company more at this point than helping because it's becoming so much noise in the space because of that. So you really need to be customer focused and tailoring your reach out specifically for that customer with value that helps solve their specific problems. So I would say stop selling features and functionality, which is something that, that we, we were doing probably strongly before COVID, but how we did that changed drastically while through COVID. We couldn't just be at an event to do that. We couldn't just meet with somebody in person to do that. We had to really create a better buyer journey. And I think that's something that's going to help us for the long run. The other thing I would say is embracing the remote workforce. We now have 4,000 employees that, that can work remote. We did not have that before. In fact, that was a humongous growing pain for us in the beginning of the COVID lockdown. Now we have that. So we probably wouldn't have invested in that this year. But now we have the infrastructure, the security, the compliance, all the things we need to run a 4,000 person distributed workforce while still having also our centers in place. And so to us, that's probably a, a big investment we wouldn't have made this year that has probably propelled the company forward. That's awesome. And so if you could kind of sum all of this and, and tie it nicely with a bow and, and give marketers and revenue strategists and, and salespeople in your industry and at technology brands a single piece of advice, what would you say that they should be focused on? Yeah, I, I just think that the change in purchase behavior is drastic. People are generally doing all of the research and making 70 to 80% of their purchase decisions prior to ever talking with the with a sales rep. So you have to go back and ask yourself, do I give prospects that much value online? Have I proven to them that I can solve their problem? And if I can, and if I'm given the opportunity, can I show it, not tell them? I have to show it to them very, very quickly. So as you build your online presence, it's essential to keep the value exchange in mind. And that means you need to give more value up front. You need to educate them. You need to help with their buying decision before you ever ask them for anything. So to me, that's the main focus that I think every company should be able to answer at this point. That's great. And so trans 
translating that to an individual level as we're bouncing back from near record levels of unemployment and hopefully we keep trending in the right direction. Obviously, there are still many sales and marketing executives finding themselves as free agents right now. How can individuals best position themselves and their skill sets, you know, relative to that advice you just gave on, on folks that are employed, you know, to, to best find a new opportunity? Yeah, I think, first of all, I love the question. First and foremost, I would say that even if you have what you think is a very solid, reliable job, the reality is we're all renting lockers these days. The day of the gold watch is over. So you have to always be driving value, whether you're a free agent or, or you have a full-time gig. So you know, I, I think it's very important for people to understand that they have to always be thinking about how am I going to be successful in my current opportunity or, or my next opportunity? And those questions come back to the same things we as marketers should be doing all the time. So if I'm a free agent, you know, I'm thinking, who's my target audience, right? Who, who do I want to work with? What problem do I want to solve for them? What is their problem? And how are they going to solve that problem? Now, prove you're good at what we're talking about today. Find the right person at that company you want to work for. Engage with them by providing that value. The same stuff we're talking about on the digital value creation. How can you find the right person at the right company that you want to work with and start showing that you can provide that value and solve their problem? Because if you can do that, you have already proven that you're the right person to help their business and they will hire you for it. It really is such an advantage for folks in sales and marketing because you are marketing yourself in a job search. So you already have those skills. But, but Brian, people forget it all the time. They forget yeah. to oh, market definitely. themselves and go and sell. I, oh, like, it's the same process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just remember what you already know is, <laughs> I think, the, the key to it. You're doing this professionally, or at least you should be doing it professionally. And you have to do it personally the same way you would do it for a brand. You are a brand. So, you know, drive that value the same way as, as you do it on a corporate level. So that's some great advice. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Hey, look, it's truly my pleasure. Again, I, I hope there was something that resonated and, and will help someone on here. If anyone wants to reach out to me, my LinkedIn is just slash uh, J Mills and my Twitter is at Jeff D Mills. So again, I'll just say keep solving problems here to help in any way I can. That's the name of the game. Keep solving problems. The world will keep creating them for you to solve. We don't have to worry about that. So uh, this is Brian Erickson with Cardwell Beach. Thanks again for listening. And please make sure to check back for more senior sales and marketing executives sharing their perspectives on what marketing will look like in a post-COVID-19 world.